Women's Bible study this fall has covered the first half, first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus, which tells of the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. If you've watched Charlton Heston or Disney's Prince of Egypt, even better if you've read the book, uh, you probably know the story. Moses, an Israelite raised in Pharaoh's house, had to flee for killing an Egyptian. After, uh, after 40 years in the Midian desert, God called him from the burning bush and sent him back to Egypt to deliver the Israelites from slavery. Now, you need to understand that God had many purposes in that deliverance. Certainly to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to make them into a great nation and give them the land of promise. You see, God had actually used Egypt as a sort of incubator uh, to grow this family of 70 into a nation of over 2 million. But further, his intent in the deliverance was to punish the Israelites for their mistreatment of the Israelites and to demonstrate uh, to the Israelites uh, and to the world, in fact, that he was the true and the living God, vastly superior to any man-made God or idol. Cue the ten plagues. Now, when I was in my first year of Bible college, one of the best classes uh, was Old Testament survey. It was required of all uh, students making it a class of, of hundreds, but it was a difficult class with a lot to memorize. I remember late in that very first semester, I walked into my dorm room, and one of my roommates was lying in his bed listening to music. I said, dude, are you ready for the Old Testament exam tomorrow? He said, yeah. I said, okay, what are the 10 plagues? And he reeled them off without hesitating. I asked, how did you do that? Well, you need a little more to the backstory. We, we were both freshmen, and he had moved to school from Ohio, leaving behind a girlfriend named Laura. But, but while he was home for Thanksgiving, don't get any ideas, while he was home for Thanksgiving, he connected with another girl named Debbie Dix. Came back, and he was in a bit of a quandary. Which one to choose? <laughs> that must have been tough. So when, I, so when I asked him, back to the story, when I asked him, how did you do that? He said, easy. Will fickle Laura feel crushed because he likes Debbie Dix? Water to blood? Frogs? Lice? Flies? Cattle disease? Boils? Hail? Locusts? Darkness? And death? The, the next day, half the class was saying, will fickle Laura feel crushed because not kidding, Dozens and dozens in the class were saying that. I don't remember which one he cho chose, but I uh, did suggest that he stick with Laura since Debbie Dick stood for darkness and death. <laughs> There's nothing to do with my sermon, just a little spoonful of sugar. Because this is a tough text. It's ten plagues. We're all expressions of... Yahweh's superiority over the false gods of, of Egypt. Very interestingly, immediately after the deliverance, the Israelites made their way to Mount Sinai where they received the Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone. The first tablet contained the first few commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God, just brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore... You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealousy for us is generally sinful. We don't normally have any right to be jealous. God, however, is the most glorious being in the universe is worthy of worship and therefore has the right to be jealous of that worship. He said, I've just demonstrated my infinite glory and superiority over the false gods and idols of Egypt, so so do not worship false gods. Then, roll the clock forward, 40 years later, after wandering in the wilderness, Moses is preparing them to go into the land. Remember, he's not allowed to go. uh, getting ready to go into land. He writes the book of Deuteronomy. This land that they're going into was filled with f- false gods. Listen, Canaan was filled with horrible gods, with child sacrifice and sexual immorality. I mean, can you imagine any nation surviving who will sacrifice their own children and be engaged in sexual immorality? Deuteronomy 4 Moses is warning them, this is what will happen if you decide to worship their false gods. Watch yourselves, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you 40 years ago at Sinai. Don't make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. You see, God gets angry when we worship anyone or anything but him. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the works of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. It's quite the warning. The Israelites obey? No, they, they did not. Further, has humanity worshipped the true and the living God, the God of the Bible, or have they worshipped the gods of their own making? <laughs> and did you notice our God is a jealous God, a consuming fire? It's not typically a text that you'll choose to preach on. You see, while he is loving in patience, patience, his patience has its limits. He eventually did send the Israelites into captivity, Assyria and Babylon, just as promised. And he will also, make no mistake about it, he will also punish, pour out his wrath on those who refuse to repent and worship false gods, which we will find today are ultimately demonic. It doesn't matter. Just pick a God. You can't do that. It's an incredible irony, actually, that people will choose to pursue, indeed, worship that which will ultimately destroy them. 
demonically influenced, bent on their destruction in this life and in the life to come. This is one of the main themes in, in the book of Revelation. God's patience has its limits and His sure and righteous judgment will come. And yet the very sad truth is that people will still refuse to repent of their idolatry and worship those demonic false gods of destruction. It, it matters who you worship, what you worship. The purpose of this book we've seen is to encourage believers in the face of rising persecution to remind them that God is sovereign, that He will avenge His children for the evil perpetrated against them. His wrath will come. You see, we do know the end of the book. And, and, and we will be vindicated and God will reign supreme. So, so hold on, He's telling us, the best is yet to come. But woven throughout the text is a call to unbelievers, earth dwellers we've seen, to repent. Now, now, in the letters to the seven churches, God called them to repent as well. They were being unduly impacted by their ungodly polytheistic culture, and God called them to repent from their idolatry. We assume that many of them did, but this call to earth dwellers to repent seems to fall on deaf ears over and over. God will pour out His wrath on unbelievers through the demonic forces, those demonic things that they actually worship. They will know that it's God's wrath and they will still refuse to repent. This also, by the way, reminds us of the book of Exodus. God pours out His... You see, we're supposed to be thinking of the... Uh, of, of the book of Exodus as we read the book of Revelation. God pours out the ten plagues, and each time Pharaoh seems ready to throw in the towel. Okay, you can go and worship your God, but each time, interestingly, he changes his mind. He hardens his heart. Well, <laughs> a few times he, he hardens his heart. Very interestingly, there are many times that we read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God hardens Pharaoh in his hardness. Consider, in the first plague, the water to blood, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, the question there is, uh, did Pharaoh harden his heart, or did God, uh, his own heart, or did God harden it? It's unclear. We don't really know for sure, but it very well could be one of those divine passives. God hardened his heart. You say, oh, God would never do that. Hold on to your seats. Frogs, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Uh, lice or gnats, again, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Who hardened it? Flies, insects, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Uh, cattle or livestock disease, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But make no mistake about it, we get to the sixth plague, the boils, and it clearly says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Hail, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Locust, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Darkness, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Death, finally, 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 Pharaoh throws in the towel, he gives in, but then later, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he pursues the Israelites and is ultimately drowned in the Red Sea. If I'm right... When Pharaoh's heart was hardened, is a divine passive, then seven times the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Even if it was Pharaoh who hardened his own heart then, there, about half the time, 
when Pharaoh was ready to throw in the towel, God said, no, not yet, and hardened his heart. Why? Because God's patience has its limits, and it had been reached to the end. And he was not done demonstrating his power and supremacy over the false gods of Egypt. You see, he's a jealous God. why Romans 9, speaking of this event, God speaks to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and then speaking to Pharaoh, for this very Pharaoh, it's the reason I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. In the Exodus account, we find that God raised them up to demonstrate his power and supremacy. Several times we see this purpose in the plagues. Consider, uh, again, the plagues. The, the first one, water to blood. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. The, the frogs, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The flies and the, or, the, or the insects, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Uh, the hail, that you may know that there was no one like me in all the earth. Mark it down. There is only one true and living God. I don't care what the surveys say. He does not accept the, the worship of any old religion. Further, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name in all the earth, the locust that you, you may tell your sons and your grandsons that I made a mockery of the Egyptians, that you may know that I am the Lord because he is a jealous God. The point is God hardened Pharaoh's heart at will to demonstrate that to, to everyone that he alone is God and there is no other. Further, to demonstrate that God's patience has its limits, which is why today, you see, today, the author of Hebrews says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance because there is coming a day when he says enough and it will be too late. Revelation chapter 9. We're looking at the seven trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9. The seventh one comes in chapter 11. The first four, you'll remember that God pours out His wrath on the earth, on nature, on, on the ecology, on trees and grass and seas and rivers and the sun and the moon and the stars, which will prove to be quite inconvenient to people. In fact, when the waters become bitter, we read that many people will, will die. But, but the trumpet judgments have just begun. You haven't seen anything yet. The last time we were in this book together, we looked at the fifth trumpet. The bottomless pit was opened, smoke poured out, and with it, locusts. Remember, many of these judgments should remind us of the ten, ten plagues poured out on Egypt, which ultimately ended in their death, so also here. God is not to be trifled with, you see. Locusts were hideous. They looked like horses prepared for battle, teeth like lions, which speaks of their ferocity, faces and hair like people, breastplates of iron, but most terrible tails like scorpions with which they will sting. Future tense, I believe it's future. They will sting people for five months. But here is the kicker. Here, Listen, here is the kicker. While people pursue death because of such torture, in fact, they long for death, death will not come. It will elude them in their misery. Bringing us to the text today, the sixth trumpet, where we move from torture to death. 
Revelation chapter 9, verse 13 says this. The sixth angel sounded, heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and year were released so that they would kill a, th they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen, 200 million, heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and, and a brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. There they are again. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. The fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. The power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents. They have heads, and with them they do harm. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by, those, by these plagues, incredibly, did not repent of the works of their hands so as to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. This is troubling. If you can read that, and not be shaken to your core. You have not read it closely enough. You see, God ups the ante. In the fifth trumpet, they long for death. In the sixth trumpet, death comes. Not to everyone. Not yet. But it will come. And incredibly, one-third of the earth's inhabitants will die. One-third. The fourth seal, which revealed an ashen horse with death as its rider and Hades following. Authority was given to them to kill one-fourth of the earth. Now it's one-third. So let me do a little bit of math for you because I know some of you need it. Back in the 70s, McDonald's released the quarter pounder and it was, it was, it, 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 it was famous. It took over the nation. Quarter pounder. And so... Burger King, not making this up, Burger King seeking to do battle with McDonald's released the, the one-third pounder. It was a total flop. Why? People thought one-fourth was more than one-third. In case you're mathematically challenged, let me tell you, one-third is more than one-fourth. Let me do some math for you. I suggested... With a one-fourth seal, just using today's numbers, okay? Just, that's what we have, today's numbers. That one-fourth would be today about two billion people, leaving six billion people on the planet. Now it's one-third. One-third of six billion would be another two billion people. Meaning by this time, by the sixth trumpet, half the people on the planet will die. Incredibly. People will know that it is the wrath of God. Will they repent? 
After the sixth seal, the people fled. Sixth seal, the people fled to the mountains and caves, called for the rocks to fall on them, hide them from the wrath of God and of the Lamb. After the sixth seal, remember chapter seven, there's an interlude. God is preparing for the seven trumpets, seven bowls, which will be exponentially worse, praying for his wrath to be poured out. But first, the 144,000, remember that? His people, representing, I think, all of his people, were sealed. They receive a mark on their forehead so that they would be spared from God's wrath, meaning that all that we are reading about at this point will not inflict the people of God. Oh, they will be persecuted and even killed by the earth dwellers, but they are spared from God's wrath, just like when God poured out his wrath on the Egyptians. Remember the plagues? His people, the Israelites in Goshen, were spared so also here. When I see the blood, when I see the mark, I will pass, I will pass over you. Now, I've just begun page five, so I guess I ought to give you the outline of the text. Sounding of the sixth trumpet, the release of the four angels and their armies, the description of the horses and their riders, and then the response of the remaining earth dwellers. We'll make our way quickly through the first three points, leading to our fourth point, which will serve as our conclusion. Verse 13, we see the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and John then heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. The four horns on the four corners of the altar, um, which symbolize the power and strength of God. We've seen this golden altar twice already, again, right in the presence of God, meaning that which issues from that altar likely comes from Him. Most agree it is the altar of incense which carries up the prayers of the saints to include, to include the prayers of the martyrs. Remember that in chapter 6. How long, O Lord, holy and true, uh, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth, on the earth dwellers, the ones who killed us? How long until you vindicate and avenge us? It's an imprecatory prayer. You remember they were given white robes, told to rest until the number of the, their brothers, the number of martyrs was complete. It seems now, while there will still be more martyrs to come, now is the time for God's vengeance. In other words, the voice from the altar, likely the voice of the angel, perhaps the angel of uh, chapter 8, who brought the incense to this altar, that, and, it, and it, the incense raised with the prayer of the saints, perhaps this angel, under God's direction, remember right before the throne of God, in response to the prayers of the saints, issues a command. God, God is bringing the present age and creation to a close, rescuing His people. He is, and He's going to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. But listen, and I don't say this with any relish, but deserved judgment, deserved, we're going to see it, deserved judgment awaits unbelievers. Deserve judgment awaits you if you're an unbeliever. This is, this is very serious. I've been saying this. We're in the midst of chapter 6 to 16, which are these very difficult judgments, fire and brimstone. Some of you are playing. Some of you kids Teenagers particularly, you're just playing. You come on Sunday, maybe because mom or dad make you come. 
You, you, you come on Sunday because you're playing a game. You live like hell uh, Monday through Saturday. But then you come and dip your f- feet in the water of life, just a little, maybe just your toe, just a little bit. Can I tell you that you're not fooling anybody? Everybody knows. Parents know, we know. God knows. And if I can grab you by the nap of the neck and say, listen to the judgment that is coming. Stop playing. Because God's patience has its limits. Voice said to the angel who had just sounded the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound in the great river Euphrates. Lots of discussion about who these four angels are. I mean, the definite article, the, seems to indicate that they are a specific four angels. Most with whom I agree say they are four actually fallen angels. Why? Because they're bound, and only fallen angels are bound. Later, Satan will be bound. Here, these specific four are released from their bondage to perform. Released. The angel commands it, released to perform a certain task. Notice further, they are bound at the Euphrates or in the Euphrates. The Euphrates is the 1,700, 1,800-mile river to the north and east of Israel in modern-day Iraq. Its headwaters are up in the Turkish mountains to the north, and it, this river actually goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Remember, the river came out of the Garden of Eden that watered the garden, and then it divided into four rivers, two of which were the Euphrates and the Tigris, which caused most to believe that the Garden of Eden was probably in Mesopotamia, with which I agree. It is said to be the furthest northeastern boundary, this is important, no, furthest northeastern boundary of Israel, and they reached that, actually, all the way to the Euphrates, under the reigns of Kings David and Solomon. But, important, it became known as the dividing line, the wall, if you will, between Israel and Assyria, later Babylon, from which God would mete out His judgment on rebellious Israelites who engaged in idolatry because He doesn't like it. So Scripture sometimes speaks of the Euphrates overflowing its banks in judgment. This is the picture here. Brings us quickly to the second point, the release of the four angels. Again, fallen angels or demons, notice, and their armies. The four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year. So that's why the definite article is used of these angels. These had been specifically prepared for this specific moment. Don't miss it. It was a specific time, perhaps known only to God, down to the very hour, the very day, the very month, and the very year, meaning God is sovereignly in control of, of the work of their hands. He is in control. He's the one that says, by His authority, He said, release them, because Satan is God's Satan. You understand that? They aren't equals duking it out. No. Demons are God's demons. They don't do anything out of God's sovereign control. Yes, these fallen angels will pour out death and destruction all under the control of God. And when he says now, it will be now, this minute. If you're visiting this morning, I don't always preach like this, except in the book of Revelation. This is troubling to some people. 
Perhaps some of you, wait, you are saying that God is the one who releases this evil destruction? What does the text say? Because there is a limit to his patience. Indeed, there is a limit to his mercy. When the time comes for him to say enough, it will be enough for his glory and for the good of his people. And he will use these pathetic minions to carry out his purposes. And when the voice comes from the golden altar before his throne, release the angels from the Euphrates, they will be released and they will kill one-third of humankind. text doesn't say that these are only the earth dwellers, but we remember that God's people were sealed and further verses 20 and 21 seem to indicate that these are the ones who are still the earth dwellers, still living in rebellion. Now, Suddenly, in verse 16, these armies appear seemingly out of nowhere. It's kind of like a, a head jerk, a right turn. Uh, most certainly, uh, most, excuse me, rightly assume these are the armies of the four fallen angels, which indicate how they are going to kill so many people. And again, our numbers today, two billion. Not only that, when we see their description in just a moment, it is clear that these are the armies of demons. What is shocking is their the number of the horsemen. The Greek actually says it is twice myriads of myriads. You may remember back in chapter 5 where we saw myriads of myriads of angels surrounding the throne of God. We said there that a myriad was the largest number used in the Roman Empire at this time, and it was 10,000. So myriads of myriads back in chapter 5 meant at least a hundred million. 10,000 times 10,000. But most agreed back there that it described an uncountable number that John said there were myriads and, and myriads of angels, too many to count. So here it is twice the number of that which is uncountable. It's interesting that many want to say twice 10,000 times 10,000 is 200 million to come up with a very specific number. Even my translation said that. So likely you've heard the Chinese army to the east of the Euphrates numbers 200 million. Cue ominous music. Listen, it might be a specific number. After all, John says, I heard the number. But what he heard was twice myriads of myriads. And again, it could just simply mean this is an enormous number in this demonic Calvary. Besides, it's not a human army. Can't, not the Chinese, okay? How do I know that? Look at the description of the riders and the horses, this huge cavalry of armies, verses 17 and 18. John says, this is how I saw in the vision of the horses and those who sat on them. First, the riders, I'll just go through this quickly. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone. It's not clear whether it's the riders or the horses or perhaps both. Most think that it's both that have breastplates of these three colors, fire red, blue hyacinth, it's a flower, it's a dark blue, and yellow burning sulfur. See, that's what brimstone is, yellow burning sulfur. This would have been an awesome, terrifying appearance. Heads of the horses, next. I like the heads of lions. It's kind of weird, but then we remember this is apocalyptic literature. It's what John saw. He said that. This is what I saw in my vision but these horses and riders with breastplates and heads like lions, they actually mean something. They point to something real. Likely here, they are ferocious, striking terror in the hearts of people. For out of their mouths spew three things corresponding to those three colors, fire, smoke, and brimstone. 
Fire, smoke, and brimstone out of their mouths. The great irony here is that the demon's own destruction awaiting eternal torment is said to come with the same descriptions of fire and brimstone in Revelation 19 and 20. Hallelujah. As a result, one-third of humanity was killed by these three plagues, fire, smoke, and the brimstone, which proceeds from the mouth of these lion-like horses. As I've said all along, don't try to draw this picture. Right? I, I, you can Google it if you want to. Sixth trumpet, you'll get all kinds of depictions. I thought I'd show you one, but... Pfft. Do not try to assign some kind of modern weaponry or warfare. These are demonic forces. They do not need our tanks and helicopters. Take the image as a whole. And the image... And imagine the terror that it would strike in the hearts of people and the death and destruction as a demonstration of God's wrath that they will bring. John adds one final detail to the picture and the, the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, the fire, the smoke, and brimstone coming from their mouths. But their tails are like, almost the word like, are like serpents and have heads and with them like the locust scorpion sting, with them they do harm. See the picture in your mind, whole thing. This is horror. This is God's wrath being poured out through dem demonic forces unleashed to do what they want to do. Demonic forces that people worship in false religions are bent on destruction. One author calls this, interestingly, the great reversal. What does that mean? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus gave his followers, as he sent them out, authority to tread on snakes and scorpions. Here, snakes and scorpions will torment and kill those who refuse to be his followers. The great reversal. Bringing us to the fourth point in conclusion, verses 20 and 21, the response of the remaining two-thirds of earth dwellers, the unbelievers. Do they... Repent. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. This is incredible irony. They continue to worship the forces of evil which are bent on their destruction. Why would they do that? Because they are dead in trespasses and sin. Paul said God's kindness leads us to repentance. Here we see even his wrath will not lead most to repentance. Several things here from which they do not repent and in fact continue to pursue. First is idolatry. They do not repent of the work of their hands so as to not worship demons. Stop right there. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. This is a stunning statement, both by Paul and now John, as well as Moses. You can look it up in Deuteronomy 32. The worship of false gods is ultimately the worship of demons. It matters who you worship. 
And if you walk away, as I've seen people walk away from the faith, you are walking away from the only true and living God. He's not to be found anywhere outside of this. Demons want to be worshipped and distract you from the worship of the true and the living God through Jesus. And if you do that, it will bring you utter ruin. Further, they worship idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can either see, hear, or walk. M- Moses said that in chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 4. The psalmist says that in, in, in chapter, uh, Psalm 115, which says, which, by the way, they're all, this is all over the Bible, about the worthlessness of idols. I think it's Isaiah who says you take a log and, one, and you cut it, and one half you cut into firewood, you cook your food, and the other half you carve into an idol and carry around. How stupid is that? How dumb are we? Psalm 115, but our God is in the heavens. You can't carry him. There's not a temple that can hold him. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have Ears cannot hear, noses they cannot smell, hands they cannot feel, feet they cannot walk, cannot make a sound with the throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Their worshipers will as well lose all sensibility and understanding. Not only do they not repent of their idolatry, they continue in it, they pursue it to their utter destruction. And they do not repent of four things that go right along with idolatry, three of which are found in the rest of the Ten Commandments. They do not repent of their murders, which, by the way, includes hatred. Their sorceries, which are all kinds of the dark magic arts. And so that's serious stuff. You're supposed to stay away from that stuff. Listen, parents, your kids are on TikTok. Get them off TikTok. Parents, get off TikTok. It is going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. I got a better one. Take away their phones. What are you doing? That's not in my notes. I thought I'd just throw that in there. (laughs) Their immorality. Spelled T-I-K-T-O-K. Because sexual immorality and vice goes with idolatry, with their thefts. See, it all goes together. It's all a package deal. My heart is, in case you can't tell, is extremely heavy this morning. I studied this this week. That was fun. Robert Mounts writes of this text. Nowhere will you find a more accurate picture of sinful humanity pressed to the extreme One would think that the terrors of God's wrath would bring rebels to their knees. Not so. Past the point of no return, they respond to great punishment with increased rebellion. Such such is sinful nature, untouched and unmoved by the mercies of God. If this text teaches anything, it teaches that when God's wrath is poured out on humanity, they will know it's God's wrath and they will still not repent. They will choose to worship idols of their own making, which are demonically inspired. They will choose their sin rather than forgiveness offered through the work of Christ. There is coming a day, listen to me very carefully, there is coming a day when God will say enough. 
You say, but we don't worship idols today, little fat Buddhas. Grant Osborne writes, by definition, idolatry is turning an earthly thing into a god and worshiping it rather than the god of creation. Whatever we place ahead of God in our lives is an idol. Those things you do during the six days of the week, idols, if they're more important than God. Therefore, the modern world is replete with idols. Money, possessions, power, pleasure, sex, success, fame, drugs. He throws drugs in there because that goes with sorceries. It's a word from which we get our word pharmacy. These are all tools of Satan. And there, these are, and there are countless stories in which these very things have tortured and killed those who pursue them. And yet many continue to pursue them. You say, but I don't... I don't, I don't think I, I believe this, Scott. And this, this just, I don't believe this legend, this fairy tale, this myth. You're right. I'm only here because my parents make me come. I choose to live for myself and my sinful choices. I want to say to you that we see the word repent or repentance several times in chapters 2 and 3 as Jesus calls the church to repent. After those chapters, the word only appears in two more chapters. Here, chapter 9, they refuse to repent. Chapter 16, verses 9 and 11, they refuse to repent and give God the glory that is due Him. Why would they do that? Why would you do that? It is to your own destruction. And so my heartfelt plea for you today is to repent and to believe in Christ before it is too late, before God says, enough. Let's pray. Father, I, I know I've, I had to look at this all week. This is a hard text. It's not been fun. Not fun to study, not fun to preach, and yet it contains inviolable truth, truth that we must believe, and, and, and truth that reminds us that we believe in the true and the living God, and we will remain faithful despite culture's cry, their call, their wooing us to walk away from the things of faith. Commit, we repent in, in as much as we have, and we commit to follow you faithfully. And my prayer is, is for people who, again, parents drug in, or perhaps they come because they, well, they've been coming all their lives. They don't know to do anything else on a Sunday morning. My prayer is that they truly know Jesus. I say it all the time. I can spit and scream and holler and plead and beg, and it will be of no value if you by your spirit do not awaken cold, dead hearts to believe the gospel. And so I pray that you would do that because the end is coming and we want to be with you. In Christ's name, amen.